Demystifying the Role of the Network Engineer, Episode 62. Welcome back, my friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets out there. We have another episode of the Zigbits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than gigabytes. As always, our goal is to provide real-world context around technology. I'm your host, ZigZiga. Welcome back, my friends. I'm extremely excited today because we have a great guest expert on the call today. Uh, my good friend, Rob Riker is here to help us demystify the, the network engineer role. I think there's a lot of questions out there. What is a network engineer? What is a network admin? And we're going to really just talk about those things and highlight the differences and what you really do need to know today in this world, in this industry around being a network engineer. Hey, Rob, enough of me talking, man. Thanks for joining. I appreciate it, and I can't wait to get into this. So um, let, let's just do it, right? Um, thanks again for joining. How are you, Ben? Uh, th- well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, it's It's been busy, man. Uh, life is awesome. Uh, I'm consistently living a dream. Um, I mean, working in IT, I work from the house, uh, t- teaching people how network engineering works. So it's just, just kind of I actually teach what we're talking about at, for a living. So, uh, yeah, wow. this is, it's awesome, man. I, um, you know, uh, it's been a dream in the middle. Well, I've been living a dream for 10 years. And, um, I mean, every day is I get up, I'm excited for work. So, I mean, I really can't complain. Yeah. I got to say that, um, being excited about what you do is huge. So just for everyone listening, we, we did bulletized an outline, right? But we don't have anything scripted and we're just going to talk about this stuff, right? So how would you define a network engineer? That's a really good question because I'm like you, I've probably seen probably 20 different descriptions of what a network engineer is to a company and to a person. So it's actually kind of funny. Uh, when I, my first network operations job, I was talking to a network engineer in quotes, but he was a storage guy. Like, how is that network? <laughs> yes. like, like that didn't make any sense to me because it had nothing to do with the network. Well, I guess later on down the road, I realized iSCSI and fiber channel, there's some networking involved, but it's not networking that I was aware of with IP and stuff like that. But to me, a network engineer, when you boil it down to brass tacks, is somebody that comes in, whether it's a customer engineer or a third-party consultant, that looks at what the company is trying to do and makes recommendations and moves to make the network do what is necessary for the business to make money and uh, be sustain- sustainable. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what a network engineer, in my opinion, does. You know, we're making changes, we're making optimizations, we're trying to figure out why the network is doing XYZ when it should be doing ABC. Um, so it's, um, and that that's kind of a, an, an overarching umbrella, if you will. But, you know, I've also talked with some people who are like, well, network engineers, they just click buttons and type commands, right? I'm like, oh God, if that was, uh, that's all I had to do every day, I would be bored out of my mind. But yeah, that's in my in my opinion, that's what a definition of a network engineer does. I think that's a fairly good definition. I would also be pretty bored out of my mind if I had to click buttons every day and, and whatnot. You know, I did the server admin for a few years, uh, uh, so you know, I'm not trying to talk about all my background. But like, um, when I got out of the military, um, you're you're jack of tra- you're jack of everything, right? You you're, you don't know anything from a master perspective. You don't know networking and servers all the way down to like the low level bits, but you know everything at a high level, you know it probably like the two feet level down. So like, you know servers, you know networking, you know security, um, you know uh, web design, you know programming. And so you come out, I came out of the military that way and it was like, okay, well, what job do I get, right? And I got a systems engineer's role, which is really just uh, O&M, so operations and maintenance of servers, Windows servers. So it was back then, it was probably 2000 and 2003 servers and Exchange. And and that was all GUI, right? It was all GUI-driven, clicking, and maybe some scripting. Um, PowerShell really didn't exist at the time. So it was all really scripting, right? And VMware wasn't as big of a, a push back then. So it was all you know pizza boxes, hardware, um, tons of racks of servers, and you're just connecting them all in. Um, so the, you know the times definitely have changed, for sure. It's actually funny you mentioned that because that's actually my very first IT job as well. <laughs> I went to, I worked, uh, my very first gig was a, was a month long consulting project where I was just deploying printers and PCs and it was a good hands on experience. Um, I wouldn't even consider it help desk. Like it was just techno, it was technician level stuff. And then I ended up getting a job with the school district here in not too far from where I live now in Northern Illinois. And the, the job was systems administrator. So it was level one help desk. So answering phones, taking care of tickets 
but it was also the little bit of networking, a little bit of wireless, a little bit of security with firewalls, some uh, PCs, imaging PCs, uh, more, more of that than anything else. Then there was uh, deploying phones, moving voicemail around. It was kind of like you mentioned, the jack of all trades kind of thing. And I remember we had consultants come in that were, you know, VMware guys and high level Cisco engineers. And I was like, well, I want to be like them because it's like <laughs> my boss who I look up to, who's like the leader of the group is asking them what they think they should do. And I'm like, wow, okay. This and I started kind of learning the hierarchy of how things started to come into play. And I'll never forget uh, the first time I met a CCIE. I'll keep his last name out of it because I didn't, haven't talked to him about this. His first name is Dan. Um, but I was like, how did you get to where you're at? And he started laughing. He goes, oh, he's like, I'm going to need a beer to start with. I'm like, wow, that, that, that bad, huh? And it was kind of, he was like, well, he's like, have you ever heard of i and &E? I'm like, no. And he's like, well, that's where I started. I just went CCNA, CCNP, CCIE. And I'm like, oh, because I was still trying to get my CCNA at the time. And this is 2012, I think. And that was a late bloomer to IT. I, I spent 10 years in warehousing before I got into IT. So I drove a forklift around a warehouse and worked in a freezer for three years. Wow. So when people talk about motivation to stay busy and not go back to it, I worked blue collar. I used to move, you know, 70, 80,000 pounds a day in my day job. So I know what it's like to bust my butt and come home, be sore, tired, and like literally just crash. It's extremely demanding, so, right? Like it's not it, easy work. It not, it's physically demanding work. I don't want to say anything's easy, right? Even IT isn't easy per se, but it's extremely demanding on the body. Yeah. And that was the whole thing. I, I did, a, I spent a lot of time doing that. And I remember I was working at a, at a, in a warehouse, not a, about 15, 20 minutes from my house. And I was working 80 hours a week, making, I think like 14 or 15 bucks an hour. And then I crossed the two-year mark, and I got a bump to, I think, 18 an hour. So I was just starting to get to the point where I could make ends meet, and I wasn't having to borrow money or work a, a stupid amount of overtime to do that. And I was like, I told my wife, I said, something has got to change, because I'm like, we have no money. Like, $30,000 a year was a stretch for us to make, and that wasn't enough to, to run a family. Now, I've got two kids, a house. You know, it's, yeah. I'm like, this isn't going to work long term. I knew that. And uh, my dad worked in IT, as a matter of fact, he worked at Universal Studios back in the 90s as a, as a sysadmin. So I worked with him a little bit. And it's kind of funny. It was some HTML coding that they had me do as this, like a side project because they were doing like, a proof of concept with, uh, with HTML 3 and 4 back then. And they're like, hey, your kid's into HTML, right? And he's like, well, yeah, he's like, we'll have him come in. We'll work on the weekend a little bit and try to do some stuff like that. And I was just like, Dad, I don't know how to, I'm like, I'm using a book to write it all down. He goes, they don't know. They don't care. Just come on in. It's proof of concept. So that, that was my very first exposure to real IT, but I didn't see myself doing it professionally. I actually, it's kind of funny. I played guitar. Uh, I still do. Um, but I wanted to be the next Stevie Ray Vaughan or mm -hmm. Steve Vai. That's what I wanted to be. Well, obviously that did not pan out for me, but yeah. um, long-term that wasn't a, that wasn't going to be a career path either. Cause nowadays with, you know, Spotify and, you know, stuff like that. And now with COVID, you know, they, those guys are out of a job because, you know, they can't do anything live anymore. But um, yeah, it was a lot of that stuff that I learned early on had kind of paved the way. Learning how to read HTML has been extremely useful today with like, for example, uh, in any connect client profile, when I want to look at the XML breakdown to that, because what it is, an XML file, I can read that and I can edit the XML file itself because I know how to read the tagging. So stuff that I learned 25 years ago has come full circle nowadays when I'm deploying stuff for customers. And it's like, it's kind of weird how it all comes full circle. Now the stuff that I see back when I was my very first IT job, where I was learning VMware and Microsoft and doing those sysadmin stuff, it's like that stuff is no like no brainer work for me. I can get in there, I can deploy a user, I can get them set up, and then I can d dive into ICE and make sure that the user can, uh, any connect VPN and they're authenticated via ICE, they get a, pl a place in the right group policy. That stuff's all, I won't say it's easy, but I know how to do it, right? And But if it wasn't for the back-end understanding that I had from when I was a kid and then learning how to do all this stuff on the job, I mean, that to me, that's what a network engineer does, right? They're always, there's a constant learning. It's not get up at 5 a.m., make the donuts and go home at noon. Right. And then that's, that's all you do. And that's what you want to do. I don't think IT is the right career path for you because there's there are people I know that do that, but they're not happy. They're like that grumpy old person in the corner. They're just like all always mad about stuff. And I'm like, why are you upset? Like, this is the greatest job in the world. Like you get to play with technology and get paid for it. 
it's the person you never want to talk to, right? Like it's, it's, it's exactly. that older, you know, seasoned veteran in, in the career field. And it's, you just don't talk to that person, right? Like you just don't. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that seasoned veteran. Um, I'm sure you know who Daniel Dib is. Yep. Um, and I like, I, I, he brings this up because it, it was just a tweet that he put out a couple weeks ago where I've, I've been doing this stuff for 10 years and I know guys that have also been doing the same job for 10 years elsewhere. But if they've been doing the same, they don't have 10 years of experience, in my opinion. They've been doing the same job ten, uh, year after year after year after year. So they have 10 years of experience or they have one year of experience year after year after year where I've done all kinds of stuff. So when I say I've got 10 years of experience, I literally have touched all kinds of in- environments. So I do think I have 10 years of experience because I've, I don't think I've done the same project more than three or four times, and each time I've done it, yeah, I might be deploying DMVPN over the WAN, over internet and MPLS, but there no two deployment solutions are even close to each other, other than the configuration to get DMVP up and running. Well, I would tie that, I would tie that all back to the business or the company that you're working for, right? So, like, um, you might deploy. Let, let's just use a, an example, and I'll try to be vendor agnostic because I like examples. I feel like they give us some real world context to whatever we're talking about. Um, so, let's say NAC, right? Network access control, and you guys can go search for whatever NAC solution that you want to put in that bubble, right? Where I'm not going to call out a vendor specific solution here, but like you could deploy a NAC solution for a SaaS company. You could deploy a NAC solution for um, a financial company. You can deploy a NAC solution for um, an energy company. And the deployments are going to be very different. The use cases can be very, very different depending on the organization, the business. And then also, what is that business trying to achieve, right? Like, what are their priorities? What are their outcomes? What are their drivers from a business perspective? That's going to dictate how you deploy that that solution, that NAC solution. And you can pretty much fill that that solution. That was an example with like SD-WAN if you want. You can fill it with any, any of those solutions and architectural plays. It comes down to what is the business trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish? Yeah, that's that's the thing that I I think that network engineers they need to be able to. I, I found I initially found it difficult to take what was being tasked of me as an entry level guy uh, with like a CCNA, and if it wasn't like laid out in front of me, for example, you know you've got milestone one is you know get equipment you know in from vendor. Uh, Task two is unbox it, make sure the operating system is right where we need it to be, you know, and then get it all bootstrapped. You know, if it wasn't laid out in that in that manner to, okay, uh, step three is get the, the pre-config on. Step four is get the final config from the engineering team. Step five was ship it back out. If things weren't broken down for me as standard operating procedure, uh, mindless drone operations, I didn't really understand what I was supposed to do, right? And that was that, that goes back to that blue collar mentality of, well, I go to work and I know how, I know I need to push like these five different buttons on this machine to make the machine do its job, right? And that's my job. Um, network engineering is to me is is taking that same uh, same logic, but now you're the one building those processes. You're the one taking what the business is telling you, but the uh, interpretation is it, design, in my opinion. And I'm speaking from uh, my own opinion here. You might have a differing opinion. That it's it's one hundred percent subjective. I might see something one way, you might see something a different way. So I might look at design, and I might like. Uh, I actually just rolled this out for a customer a couple of weeks ago, where we they wanted to deploy a server in a data center, and they wanted to be able to remote access VPN into it. Like, okay, cool. I'll get an ASA firewall and a couple of Cisco UCS servers. Boom, problem solved. Right. That I knew how to deploy that, but that's implementation, right? That's the, the actual configuration piece to it. And he's like, well, can you draw that out for us? And I'm like, oh, great. I have to go visit you something up now and go through those, <laughs> those steps. I did that. And it was a pretty r- r- uh, rudimentary because it was a small deployment, but I got it done. And they were like, oh, we were expecting something a little more, you know, pizzazz. You know, I'm like, it's a network diagram, dude. I'm like, I'm not Picasso. <laughs> and, you know, it's uh, it is what it is. And we deployed and it, it works great. But at the end of the day, there to me, there's a very clear line in the sand between engineer and how how they interpret what's going on in the design because a lot of times in my, from what I've done in my experience in the jobs that I've held is my design is dependent on what I know about the technology and how that what the uh, the uh, the SRNDs or the the CVDs that Cisco puts out I follow those a lot because I'm not a CCD you know I don't I don't always have the architect um, coming at me. Sometimes I'm not the architect. Sometimes I'm just the engineer and I don't have a say in how it's deployed. I just have to get it working. 
And that's been the majority of my career where I'm, I haven't been the architect. I may have held the title of architect, but that doesn't mean I'm actually architect. So it's like I take what the, cu- the customer tells me and I have to interpret those uh, those guidelines and those requirements. And then I take what I know from a technical perspective, from my CCIE prep, my service writer stuff. I take that understanding and then I say, okay, well, I can do X, Y, Z, and this is how we're going to do it. And I may give them a couple of different uh, options for, for the deployment itself. But that, that to me, in a nutshell, is what the engineer does. They take what's being given to them and they have to make it work some way. Because what the, sometimes what the architect might dream up or, you know, sell to the customer isn't going to work implementation wise. You know, whether it's a lack of understanding on the architect side or, you know, they're just trying to be a yes man to the customer. Um, more often than not, I like to be involved in those conversations because I could be like, not, I'm not working with guys like you that know know what you're doing. A lot of times, you get somebody that's barely got a CCNA, but they look at you know this is what the the platform can do, right? And then yeah. they say, well, it yeah. says it can so, do, uh, do I SCSI, and I'm like, well, just because it says it can do, it doesn't mean it's going to do it the way they need it to. So I think I think I think to clarify, right? I think from my perspective, I think there's different levels or there not different levels. I think there's different architects. I think there's the the sales engineer, sales architect that is usually in a pre-sales process, pre-sales role, whatever type of company, vendor, partner, whatever. Um, and, and they're brought in and, and they're incentivized based on commissions and, and different aspects of what they're trying to sell potentially to that situation. And they're designing a solution because they're potentially, you know, they're, they're compensated based on, sorry, their behavior is, is going to, directed or, or their actions are directed based on compensation is what I'm trying to get at. Sure. And so, you know, they might pick one model of a switch over another. They might pick one router over another router. And I think that kind of clouds the engineer side of things, right? So when you actually get that hardware on site, now it's on the engineer to say, well, well, this isn't going to work or, you know, like, like this, it doesn't have enough ports or it doesn't have enough bandwidth or it doesn't have the licenses. I mean, you know, you get the list, the list is long, right? Maybe they didn't get the power cords. There's all these issues. I also think there's another level of architect that I would say is maybe the more possible answer to what an architect slash designer should be. And I'm doing that slash on purpose because I view, and I want to make sure everyone that's listening understands this, that I view as a, as a good designer is going to make a choice on a technology comparison. So I would uh, that's the lowest level of how to define what you're doing from a design perspective. And I'll, I'll use an example because it's usually the one I use. So you're picking an IGP, right? So an interior gateway routing protocol, IGP. Why do you pick OSPF versus EIGRP versus ISIS? You know, these are three different IGPs. And from a, a design architecture perspective, there should be a valid reason why you're picking one over the other. And it shouldn't just be because it shouldn't just be because um, someone's studying for the CCIE. It shouldn't just be um, they know it. I mean, that, that might come down to that, right? They, they know it. They right. know OSPF. So we're deployed OSPF. But, it, you know, you got to judge. You got to make that decision based on the environment and the business drivers and outcomes that you're, you're talking about. So let's say we go down that rabbit hole, right? And we pick OSPF. That designer picked OSPF and now it's on the engineer to implement OSPF. That's right. kind of how I, I equate that. Now, the engineer could be different levels. You, know, you could be a junior engine network engineer that just started. You can be kind of a mid, mid-career engineer, and then you can be like a senior engineer. So I think that I want to make that clear, too, from a role perspective. You could be 20 years in, in this industry, in this career field, and you could be a network engineer. Um, you know, uh, Companies have engineers that are senior, that are three, four, five, you know, grade levels higher than they were when they first started. So I don't think that's too far off. Now, those are like senior engineers that like, they probably have a CCIE or two CCIEs or something comparable, right? We're using Cisco certification as that benchmark, if you will. But like, that doesn't mean that's what they have. They could have other vendor certifications. And and they're the ones that kind of have that overarching, okay, you know, this is how we're going to configure this protocol. This is how we're going to configure. Here's here's the you know templated configuration for that junior engineer to apply. Does that resonate? Right. Yeah. 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 Totally. That, that's a lot of that's a lot of what I've seen. So I'm actually glad you clarified. Um, that's a, a lot of what I've seen. I've had to take a look at the technical rollout before it actually gets signed off by the customer and be like, yeah, this isn't going to work. I'm like, you can't. Ma- I mean, it can, but it's going to be ugly and it won't be clean. Yep. And then we'll have to provide more support for them day in and day out than what your 
stating in the statement of work that you're only going to provide, you know, let's say two hours a month of, you know, after hour support. They're going to need, especially as, uh, as quickly as they're claiming that they might be growing, if they're looking at 25% year after year at 1,000 sites, that's 250 sites a year. So that's a lot of growth. That's a lot of deployment. And if you're breaking that down on a per weekly basis, that might be a couple sites a week, um, depending on the deployment. That but, becomes normal, right? That's normal behavior then if it's a couple of sites a week. Right. And at that case, then you're like, okay, how is this going to scale at the end of the day? So engineers will look at that a little bit different than an architect or a designer would. And I think that's really important because I know from firsthand experience, having, I remember when I just cleared my CCIE, I go to work on a Wednesday. I, cl- I cleared it on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whatever it was. I forget when I took the actual exam, but um, it was the following week, midweek, I get handed this project for DMBPN, super simple deployment. I think it was five sites. And they're like, they're, for some reason, they just wanted to run OSPF because OSPF was the internal IGP. And I say, no, we don't run OSPF over DMBPN. We're not doing that. And I went back to the customer and said, here's why we don't do that. And I laid it out for them. And they were like, oh, well, I'm sure glad you sat down with us because the architect said this would be no problem. I said, not saying it couldn't be done, but any person with their salt is going to tell you that there's much better ways of approaching it. EIGRP would be the mother, a much better direction that we just do. E, uh, we can easily redistribute between the two protocols, the single point and problem goes away. And he's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's go ahead and do that. So we did that. And it was, it was easy to migrate. You know, they were uh, at the time they were doing just point to point GRE tunnels and it made it scale. Cause then all I had to do, for example, when they added a new site, but they were looking at a new site like every year, maybe okay. a smaller yeah. company. It was, okay, here's a template test config, just populate these few fields, copy, paste, boom, your tunnel's up. You know, made it very, very easy for them yep. to, to, to scale. And that, to me, is where the engineering comes into play. It takes with the existing architecture, and I can say, okay, well, this is this is good. You know, it might do the job, but how can we make it better? You know, Kaizen, your network, if you will, continuous improvement. And as a matter of fact, the company I work for, we use Kaizen and everything. So if I'm looking at any one particular process, I don't care how big or how small it is, we're looking, okay, how can we do this better? You know, to whatever it might be, whether it's we automate something or we pass that pass that buck to somebody else. Always looking at trying to improve the existing infrastructure because at the end of the day, what's good today might not be good in a year from now. You know, That's and true. you have to be able to make that call. You know, uh, there's a thing that I've had to deal with more times than I care to remember is technical debt. We can't deploy this because we still have three years left on the lease or. You know, we're we're not ready budgetary wise to roll that out. We're in the middle of a um, we refreshed 18 months ago, so we have to wait another two years to refresh. I'm like, wow, okay. I have to for some <laughs> somehow I'm gonna have to make this work for two years, and this is gonna and that's a long term, right? And it it is, and that's where sometimes the engineer has to think out of the box solutions, and that ties back into you know it doesn't necessarily design, but understanding how the protocols work. And being able to, they, they, they have to level up uh, when it comes to their understanding. Because if you're just okay with where you're at with your deployments and you can, you, you don't have to really stress too much about trying to get something to work. I find that those are the people that in a year or two from, from then are going to struggle a lot when it comes time to do a new deployment or an upgrade or something like that. Because they're, they're kind of just treading water, you know, at that point, just, just barely floating. And to me, if you're just barely floating in the position you're in, you need to do something to make yourself to where you can sit on your you're floating and you know sipping on a mai tai, you know, <laughs> with with your with your level of comfort yep. versus barely treading water. Because um, we can keep it certification agnostic, but I mean, whether you're working on Juniper gear with a JNCIE or you're working on Cisco gear with a couple of CCIEs, at the end of the day, people are going to expect you with that level of certification be able to take on that responsibility and execute on whatever it is you're doing you're going to have the technical expertise to do so and if you're barely treading water on whatever it is you're doing that can be um i find that to be something that people will struggle with and the show notes actually talk about a little bit about pocs and you know how to how to deal with that so i'm gonna i guess we can kind of pure pivot into that a little bit yeah that's, we can like, pivot back to, the, the, to our, our outline a little bit right so yeah a little, a little bit so when it comes to stuff like that, um, one of the, the most common things that I've seen in the industry is um, you don't really get to pick and choose when a project drops into your lap. It just gets kind of handed to you. And it's like, hey, Rob, here's this project. Or, you know, or you're called into a meeting because it's like maybe the very first meeting of the next 100 for a deployment. 
I'll never forget this when I, I won't name the company that I work for, but it's a very, very large shoe retailer. Um, you know, you can kind of take your pick as to who it might be, but um, we ended up wanting to figure out a way to deploy SD-WAN because at the time SD-WAN was kind of the new buzzword. At the time, iWAN was popular, uh, Vitella, um, Cloudgenix, you know, uh, Teleri. There was a bunch of, um, I think even Riverbed had their own thing going on. We, we interviewed a lot of different uh, vendors that came in and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, okay, none of these people really have a solid solution in play. So to me, SD-WAN doesn't seem like the right fit for this position, for this solution in order to meet the design requirements because we're talking several thousand sites and none of the vendors here are confident above 500 and that comfort level when you start throwing out multi-thousand uh, retail stores and none of them can talk to each other it's basically spoke to hub, hub to spoke yeah um yeah. and nothing nothing spoke to spoke I'm like, okay, what it, what it, what is what's the largest solution you've done so far with that? Oh, 500. I said, how hard, how hard was it to deploy that? And no, don't be, be don't BS me. And they're like, oh, it wasn't too bad. I'm like, okay, that, that means it was rough. Um, <laughs> so you have to kind of be able to read between the lines. But that's when you kind of have to sit down and go, okay, yeah, I know a VP or a director or some some C-suite person thinks SD WAN would look cool on the resume between moving from this company to the next, trying to, you know, move from maybe CIO to CTO or whatever their, their career path looks like. That's fine. They can have that outlook and that desire. But at the end of the day, I'm not comfortable pushing that solution into this environment. If I'm going to be spending half of my work week troubleshooting and putting out the fires that it creates. So that's when you have to sit down and have a legit conversation and be like, okay, you know what? I, you know, you're not supposed to go uh, argue with your superiors <laughs> is what they tell you, but uh, you, just because your title says boss or manager or director does not mean you're the smartest person in the room. And oftentimes the engineering team that I've teams that I've worked with, they are there for a reason. You know, they're the network engineers for a reason. Yeah. So they should really um, humble themselves and be like, okay, if these guys are saying this is a bad idea, maybe, you know, I'm getting two or three of them on a five-man team that are saying, no, let's let's pass, let's look at the next vendor or the or the next solution type. Maybe that's what we should do. And I've I've been overruled and it's been like, no, Rob, we're gonna do this. And I'm like, oh boy. And we roll it out. You know, it's because what the boss tells tells you to do. And I don't want to say mindless drone necessarily, but at the end of the day, that person can be the person that dictates whether or not you stay employed there. And have I ever been threatened with losing my job for that? No, but at least not directly. You know, I, I have had the conversation where life may not be so easy for you when it comes time for a yearly review. I'm like, oh, you're going to play that card. Okay. I don't know. I think that's that's not fair, right? Because um, I have to chime in, of course, right? It's all good, man. When I was a junior network engineer years and years ago, I don't even know when it was. So, um, you know, I didn't know enough to push back. Like, and I would call that, that's what that is, right? Like, you know, you it have is. managers and you have bosses or whatever terminology you want to use. You have technical leads and then you have, you know, your CTOs and CIOs and whatever. Um, you know, your management staff doesn't know right? They don't know what, what is going on from a technology perspective. They only know what you, what you tell them. In most cases, I think you could have a pretty technical manager, right? That there are some fairly technical managers out there that do know and stay relevant in the technology. I think for that to happen, they have to stay pretty relevant on a, on a you know, frequent, consistent basis to stay in that role and still be able to know what's going on. But outside of those kind of people, right? You're going to have managers and they just don't know the technology, right? They don't have that CCNA, that CCNP or that CCIA or whatever certification that makes them, you know, makes you a technical person. Um, so even if anyone's listening, that's a junior network engineer, like, you know, if you truly think that something's not going to work, right, you got to roll it up that, that process, right? I mean, talk to someone that's senior first, right? Validate the concern. I wouldn't go directly to the manager, right? I'd probably go to that senior, you know, engineer or that lead uh, or principal engineer. And, and then if you were still sure that something's not going to work, then maybe have that meeting with the manager. Um, but really just articulate it. Now, I will say there's a right way to articulate this and there's a wrong way, right? Like, 
like going in there and saying, sir, your, your, your network's crap, right? That's not going to go over well, well, right? Like, or something along those lines. I'm trying to be overly, uh, crazy about it. Right. And in a nice way. Um, but there's, there's a tactful way of saying something, right. And saying, Hey, this doesn't look like this is the right idea, um, for the business, you know, and make it a business problem not your problem, right? Like, don't make it about you, make it about the business and saying, hey, if we want this to be successful, if we want our business to be successful, our organization to be successful, we really probably shouldn't do this SD-WAN solution. You know, maybe maybe we can do something different or maybe we don't do this NAC solution. And those are my two examples, right, today. But, you know, whatever technology or architecture you want to place in that position, you just, maybe this isn't going to make us successful or make us money. Maybe it's going to cost us more money as an organization. Exactly. And that's the thing that um, being able to, if you're, I've been in that position where I am the junior guy and I'm like, I, you heard something somewhere, maybe like a Cisco live video and you heard the guy that or the, the architects that are deploying this for big organizations are saying, this is not a good idea. And if that, that might be like your, your first step in being able to like argue that we shouldn't do this, but then I would bring that type of content to your higher ups, your senior engineer, your your technical lead, your manager, and be like, hey, you know, um, you're paying me to do a job, and I'm trying to do the best the best I can in this job. And these guys are saying what you guys are uh, what we're looking at isn't such a great idea. So, and then maybe reach out to them. A lot of times, the Cisco Live folks are reachable through email. Um, I've never personally gotten a, a Cisco Live. Um, uh, presenter on a, in a WebEx and had them explain to the vendor or the person I'm trying to convey that this is not a good idea. I've usually been able to try to sway them before that. Um, because a lot of times, you know, I, my title is engineer, uh, whether it's junior, mid, mid level or senior, I'm able to be like, okay, well, if you don't think it's a good idea, then we'll maybe it's time to circle the wagons and go back to square one. And mm-hmm. I've never been in, a, I've never actually had anybody hold, hold a gun to my head and say, you need to do this. But I have heard stories of people being um, not forced, but it's just like, this is in your best interest to do this or else. And I'm like, it, in situations like that, maybe maybe it's time to pull in another person from like the team, or maybe it's time for HR to get involved, especially if you feel like you're in that position. Um, and the only reason I bring that up is because I've dealt with junior engineers and they left companies because they felt like they're being ganged up on. That that does happen. Um, there there is a little bit of an ego in the industry, and you'll get people, especially like maybe um, I, I worked with a uh, manager that that did this. Um, he came from another organization that had actually deployed the solution, and he came over with the intention of taking that deployment and plugging into this environment because he had practical deployment experience, and so he became the subject matter expert. But as, um, after myself and a couple of other engineers started digging into it. We stay, like red flags started popping up for us right away. And we're like, okay, that might've worked for them, but we're not them, we're us. And we need to like, we brought that to his attention and he's just like, well, you know, since you guys are the ones that would have to be, you know, solving these problems at three in the morning when the customer can't VPN in, maybe not. And so, but he was open to feedback, which was cool. Um, but, you know, it's one of those situations where you kind of have to play it by, play it by ear and be like, all due respect, this is what I'm seeing, and I don't think this is a good idea, and here's why. But you have to be able to bring some sort of justification, not, well, Rob thinks this sucks, so we're yeah. not going to do it, and that's not going to work. Yeah, um, I mean, exactly. Rob does not have that kind of clout. Um, but like like you said, if you can articulate why, and that's the big thing when it comes to engineering, is you have to be able to articulate good and bad of both things. You know, there's going to be pros and cons. And I find that the more conversations you have, and the more times you talk it out, and whiteboard it out. I mean, when I when I worked for that very large shoe retailer, we must have had thirty or forty whiteboard sessions with the five man team. We'd go into a big conference room, we'd whiteboard it all out yeah. with the manager. But it's one of those things when you're talking about affecting multiple thousands of sites, even if you're doing a hundred sites a, a month, you have to whiteboard these things out. You have to th- okay, this failure scenario or this migration scenario. It, because if you don't, um, if you don't whiteboard it and wargame it. And you you're in rollout mode, and you're then you're discovering problems. That's when you're like, okay, then you might have to backtrack and be like, okay, well, this might not be such a great idea. And that that point, sometimes it's too late. You've got yeah, investment exactly. in there, and then the boss is like, okay, we've invested X my X Y Z. Um, so <laughs> you're gonna have to figure it out, man. Um, and you're like, okay, well, this 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 kind of sucks. 
you work through the problem, but sometimes it's like not as easy to figure out as it could have been three months ago before you pulled the trigger and did it. But, you know, you'll be in situations where you'll have to do that. And it's going to, you know, you really, you'll find, I talk about this in my, in my live calls when I teach at night for my, my full-time job, that the best experience, the best teachers on the job experience, I've learned probably as much in my day-to-day job than I have in any certification exam um, or any testing, because you, when you're testing stuff out, you're testing it in a controlled environment, right? You can control all the attributes, but when you're deploying it in production, you know, all of a sudden that one thing that was reachable before by an end user is no longer reachable. And now you have to make it reachable again. At the end of the day, the user doesn't care how, what you're deploying. If they can't do their job, that becomes your problem. And you have to figure out how to make that happen. Yeah, no, hundred percent agree there. When you have your chance to talk to your leadership about something, you bring it up, you're going to, you're going to do that, right? You're going to bring it up. Um, but understand that they still might not take your, your suggestion as action, right? Like you bring up that OSPF is a bad option for DMVPN, right? We, we talked about that earlier, right? So EIGRP is a much better option for DMVPN. And it is, right? Historically, it is. It's just how the protocol works from a design perspective. EIGRP is better on hub spoke type of topologies. And OSPF is better on like kind of a ring topology. It just, that's just how the protocols work. Um, but when it comes down to it, if, the, if that manager says, okay, great, but we're not going with a proprietary pro- protocol, Right. Right. Uh, well, now you're stuck. Right. You have to run OSPF or whatever. Um, well, either BGP or OSPF. You can't run ISIS um, in that situation because it's not IP. So you're really stuck with either BGP and that's eBGP and IBGP or OSPF. And I would probably suggest you're going to go with OSPF. Now, what I would say is that you you did your chance, right? You you talked about it. You vocalized it. At that point, that's it. Like it's done. Right. And then you have to architect, design, and then engineer a valid solution with OSPF. Now, it may not be the preferred solution, but there are ways to get OSPF to work in that spot. Right. Like it's, you can get it to work over DMVPN. It's just not as efficient and effective as other protocols. Exactly. So there's that, that, that comment. Right. I want to make that clear. Um, and then the next thing is like as a network engineer, junior, midterm, season, senior, whatever terminology, right? As a network engineer, and even as a designer and an architect, right? I, I think that we have to leave our egos at the door. Like it, it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter that we had the decision. It doesn't matter if we had the design or the implementation or we had the best option. Um, it doesn't matter about our egos, in my opinion. What truly matters is um, that you make the best design, you make the best implementation that that solves the problem, right? Like that's what really matters. And so, you know, Rob, you mentioned a couple of things about like whiteboarding with the group. And I would say to anyone that's listening, uh, like as a junior network engineer or, you know, mid, mid network engineer, or, or even a designer or architect in the future, like you want to have a team look at things, right? You want to have that, that group perspective in, in a collaborative way, right? You don't want to be doing things things in a silo. Like even me, I don't do things in a silo in my day job. I don't do it. I do it with my team. I have a team of architects that work with me. I have a team of technical leaders that work with me. Um, you know, I will use them to validate my thoughts because if I do something on my own in a silo, my perspective, my opinions, my preconceived notions, my judgments on things could cloud that architecture, that design, or even that implementation. And that's not fair to the customer, to that business I'm working with. So I try really hard to say, hey, you know, now I have a staff of pretty senior people with multiple CCIEs. So for me, I can pull, you know, I get 10, 15 CCIEs in a room together. That's a little different, but I'm just saying like, like, leverage the people that are on your staff to validate you guys are building something and implementing something that is truly what is needed and is effective. Um, and that's my soapbox. So, all right, Rob, back to you. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I'll, I'll peer away just a little bit on that because I've, I, I don't work in the same uh, arena that you do. Um, I'm more, um, I work on much smaller uh, customers and, but the, the, the point that Zig just made is, uh, is appropriate for a customer of 30 users or 30,000 users, right? The same methodology can be applied. Um, and I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I, the last company that I worked for before I came to the training company that I am with now, uh, we had a really small deployment. There's three ASA 5506s that were going to form a triangle VPN connection. And there was just some networking behind it. It was a really simple deployment. Um, and 
another engineer on my team was just like, oh, we'll just roll a DMVPN over the top and we'll be good to go. And I'm like, yeah, DMVPN is not supported on ASAs. <laughs> and it's not uh, you can, it was only in like, I think 9.7 code or something like that, that the VTI tunnel became, became an option on the ASA. But he's just like, oh, and he had sold this solution to the customer. Like the customer was on board, but the customer is a mechanic, right? He runs a couple of auto body shops that do like, you know, oil changes and, you know, tire rotations and stuff like that. And then we'll fix your, if you get a fender bender, you bring it there and they'll do all the, the body work. He doesn't know anything about IT. So we have to be the advocate for the customer in that respect. So we, I was playing architect in that position where I had to go back to the customer, sit down with them and be like, okay, this is what we're planning on doing. This is how we're going to do it. And he had a little, I had an eight and a half sheet, uh, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And I drew out his network or what it would look like to help him uh, to visualize it. I said, we're going to do this here. We're going to do that there. And I laid it out and he was just like, oh, okay. How long do you think that'll take? I said, a few hours, you know, we'll get one guy at each site. We'll deploy the firewall, connect the internet circuits. Boom. Problem solved. What we did on the back end is we took a small VMware server with three ASA firewalls, and we took a small iOS V router behind each one of them just to simulate endpoints so we could make sure that the routing would work. And we built it in VMware. We built it ahead of time so that we had everything, all the kinks worked out, all the VPNs worked, the internet worked, everything was good. We literally copied the config out of those POC boxes, and we dumped them into the routers and everything, I'm sorry, those firewalls, and everything just came online. And... We did all of our work ahead of time. So when we got on the site, we weren't trying to t- like type in crypto map, da 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 da. It was copy and paste and the device came up and running, which is where the majority of your time is going to be spent when you're doing you're figuring these solutions out. Once the solution's been determined, I know I, I, pro- I probably jumped a little ahead of myself, <laughs> but um, it just the, the, the thought just jumped into the back of my head like, oh, yeah, you can deploy from here. Um, I'm a huge advocate of when you're doing, once a solution has been decided on, you know, taking the pivot from, from Zig where it's like, okay, the boss says go, you know, no, we're not going to go with EIG. We're going OSPF. Now you have to figure it out. Um, I am not, I, I do not believe in the, the idea of using some customer's environment as a way for you to just initial, uh, type in the commands one by one, line by line, right? All of that work is done behind the scenes before you get to the deployment. It's like staging or something, right? Exactly. Whether you're using Packet Tracer, GNS3, Eve, CML, whatever uh, physical gear, whatever your, you know, whatever solution you decide to use. I'm a huge uh, believer in Eve and G because I can virtualize pretty much anything that I need to. I take that and I build a customer's environment virtually as close to the real thing as I can, minus whatever I can't do. So, like, I can't deploy ACI in Eve, but I can you know, build it up to that point. And then I can work with ACI from there. But I can take that particular platform and I can use it to build out the customer's environment, figure out all the bugs, even use the same version of code the customer's going to be deploying. You know, if, I, if he's going to be deploying a remote access VPN and site-to-site VPN and also be doing internet termination on that box, I can get all that working in a lab, build it out and then deploy it. And then what, the cool thing about doing that is whether you're a third-party consultant like I was in this particular situation or I'm a customer engineer trying to push a solution uh, or try to make this thing work after the engineering team decided on it, I can have this pull up in a proof of concept and show that it's working, right? I can put some believability to what it is I'm saying versus just whiteboarding it. And I can have it operational. I can bring in my manager. I can bring in my director. I can bring in the the C-suite people sit them down and be like, okay, this is what we're looking at. Provide everybody with like a, a real high level uh, uh, Visio design so they understand, okay, this is internet, this will be remote access VPN. So, you know, lay out the details and then walk them step-by-step through the process. By doing this, not only are you helping reaffirm that you are going to be able to deploy this, but you're showing them um, value in what you're trying to do. You're, you're proving to them that you know what you're talking about and then that gives them, they're going to see things and that's going to trigger questions in their mind. Maybe you didn't think of something that they, they bring up in the back of their head. They ask you the question, you'd be like, oh, well, that's another constraint, right? And you're doing all this before the deployment. So when deployment comes, you know, maybe the deadline's next week and this is you, this is the time frame you've had to get it working. Maybe that deadline's going to get pushed. Yeah. If that's an option, not, not always the case. Or maybe that's a, that's a, maybe that's what they call sometimes in the consulting world scope creep where it falls outside of the scope of work or it's too much additional stuff that won't be able to, to be done before the deadline happens. And you have to 
uh, add that in later on. Maybe it's a time and materials type of thing or, you know, a side project or a sub project to that one. So I bring this up because for those of anybody that follows me on YouTube or Twitter, I'm a huge proponent of labbing. I lab all the time. It's like I'm always labbing. And the reason why I do that is so that when situations do arise where I need to be able to prove something's working, I've sold more projects to customers by showing up a small lab and being able to prove that the remote desktop works and to prove that the VPNs work and to prove that you know XYZ is operational in the lab environment with the same devices and the same opera, uh, versions of code that they're going to be deploying. I've sold more projects that way with people that are on the fence than I haven't because then I'm able to prove that everything I'm saying is actually going to happen. No, I, I will uh, um, agree with that as well, right? I think that's extremely important. I have this term that I've used over the years. I say um, practice as close to the real deal as possible. Um, exactly. And this is the same thing, right? Like, it, And I do the same thing as you do, right? I don't use Eve though, um, but it doesn't matter, right? Now, I think, I think network engineers starting today have it a lot easier than we did when we were starting because there was no virtual environments. I mean, I think the closest thing was GNS3 and it was like the very, very early days of GNS3. Um, and right. a lot of the things still couldn't be virtualized. I remember, I think even when you and I were studying for our CCIEs, I remember having a physical lab environment for my CCIE um, and then moving it into GNS3, but only the routers. The switches still had to be physical. Same. Um, I think the key here is that the, we didn't have those capabilities, right? And now we do. So someone starting out now, I mean, you have so much more opportunity to get on the command line than you did five, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I mean, you can act, you can spin up all of these different emulations, virtualization technologies in a matter of minutes to an hour. I mean, these don't take long to spin up and then you're able to, to run through things live um, and configure and test and, and play around and disconnect things. It's, it's a great opportunity that, um, yeah, it's just a great opportunity. And I think what you just said, it, I do the exact same thing with my customers. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to mock this up in the lab. We're going to take everything you have, we're going to put it in the lab, and then we're going to show you. Give us like a month. But some of those cases are usually really big topologies, so it's not like 20 devices. It might be like 500 right. devices. It depends on the scale, right? But again, right. that you know, we're, we're taking time to take the configuration they have, what we can take, apply it in the virtual environment, get it all up and running, doing QA. But then that way, we're ready. Like, and we're ready as best as we can be ready for real production migrations. And of course, you can't, you can't plan for everything, right? You right. can't plan for everything. But you can get as much as you can so that when you're ready, you're like, okay, well, we got these 20 things planned for. Uh, we didn't plan for these two things because we couldn't. Like the ACI one you mentioned, right? We can't, we can't mock up ACI in a lab environment with virtual devices. Um, you know, you can't mock up some of these software-defined solutions um, in a virtual environment. You need physical devices. So there's just some limitations. Exactly. And that's that goes, when you have situations like that, just like you mentioned, you have to get it as close to working as you can. And then make sure that you try to get as large of a maintenance window as you can so that you can work through those bugs. And speaking of maintenance, um, I definitely don't like busy maintenance windows. So in other words, don't have a four-hour window packed full of 30 things to do. Um, I have busted more maintenance window timeframes than I care to admit from thinking I could get done with it faster. And you're in task three, and task three blows up on you. Task four through 27 don't ever get touched because... 28, 29, 30 were, oh, yeah. well, we need to just get these done because this is the stuff we've been saying we're going to get rolled out and you get task three fixed. Uh, the, the biggest, I've actually had to do complete rollbacks a couple of times where things just go belly up in the network and it's like, oh crap. Have a plan, man. So actually, let's, let's talk about that for a few because that's something that um, I've had more, uh, it's only happened to me a couple of times in, in my career, but a couple times that it's happened to me, they've been like eye opener. Like president of the company is in the is in the office trying to figure out what's going on. And at that point in time, whether it's a small company or a very very large company, there needs to be clear, clearly defined lines of who's uh, who's reporting to who. So uh, I've been in both situations where I've worked a very large shoe retailer um, where I had my manager, and my manager was in the conference room with us and. The door would open. He sat by the door, and then his boss would come in, 
he would talk to us like, okay, we're doing da, 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 and then he would, you know, the guy would walk away, come back a half an hour later, get updates. So we were giving it, it anything we, we were able to get fixed. My manager knew about it the moment it was happening. He was able to pass that off. I've also worked in various other situations where I've literally got the owner of the company that, you know, we're 25 employee uh, organization standing over my shoulder, tapping his things with his arms crossed, like WTF Rob. Yeah. When is this coming back online? Right. <laughs> like When is this done? There's an unnecessary uh, amount of pressure put on you. And you know what? In situations like that, you have to be like, I'm working as fast as I can. If you would give me some time to figure this out, because number one, um, one of my jujitsu instructors talks about this quite often. A problem well understood is already half solved. So if I don't know what the problem is, I'm still trying to diagnose what that issue is. You standing over my shoulder is not going to make it any faster. Um, I forget what the, what the movie is with Hugh Jackman and Halle Berry, where um, they're like, they got the gun to the head and he's swordfish. like trying to hack into something. Is that swordfish? Yeah, I think it's swordfish. Yeah, he's, he's, he's like, well, how'd you hack in? I'm sorry, it doesn't go faster when you've put in uh, in um, unnecessary pressure on me. It doesn't go faster. It actually slows me. It slows me down too. And it happens a lot, right? Like you get that manager or that, that CTO or CIO or whoever it is, that director, and they're literally over your shoulder like, okay, well, this isn't up yet. It's been five minutes. And I'm like, okay, well, right. give me give me some time. Like, like come on, I'm good. But I can't right. have you over my shoulder, like, and it's it's really stressful, right? So, uh, I think what you said about setting up realistic um, expectations during kind of the, the maintenance window is key, and the the chain of command or whatever the lines of who's in charge of what, what those roles are going to be, right? Um, I will also add is you know I I know from experience, uh, don't deviate from your script or your plan. Don't right. don't think you can make this change. Because you're like, they, they, you know, they added whoever you're working with, right? If it's your own company or you're, you're a consultant or whatever, they added this last minute thing that's like, oh, we need to be able to access this. And um, you're like, okay, I can make that happen. Sure. Um, don't, don't do those things. Make sure you're plan ahead. And, and then if something comes up live that says, hey, um, we actually want to be able to do this. If nothing's down then just reschedule this, right? That, that, that extra thing doesn't have to happen in that four hour or that eight hour window. Um, obviously if something's down, that's a different situation, right? If, if you're doing a maintenance window and you didn't perceive this thing coming down, then you have to fix that. Right. Um, and you're, you're getting that pressure from that manager saying, okay, it's, it's been 30 seconds. Why isn't it back online yet? You know? Um, but in the case of, they're trying to add to that maintenance window. That's where I would say, don't, don't do it. Even if, if, even if you think it's easy, don't do it, bring it back to that lab environment, test it out in the lab environment. I have seen some really, really crazy things like, I mean, static routes, policy-based routing, uh, static ARP entries, uh, static ARP entries for the same IP address. So multiple Mac addresses assigned to the same IP address on the same router. And I can tell you that, while on the outside, you're looking at this like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm just going to remove it, right? And you go to remove it in a maintenance window. If it's not planned, I mean, you're going to be troubleshooting. Like I can tell you, like those three or four static ARP entries, they actually did something. I had no idea. And I removed them and things broke, right? Now, obviously adding them back fixed it, but it gave you, you know, you have to plan ahead and not think that you know what you're doing, but like actually plan every, every command. So is there anything else you want to talk about, Rob? Um, just, uh, one, one small piece is when you are planning a project, make sure that everyone that's involved in that project knows what they're doing and what their expectations are, um, which ties into the maintenance plan and managing priorities and that type of stuff. Um, if you put together a roster of who's doing what and what their expectations are and deadlines to have, you know, put together a project plan, that's been huge for me because then that there, that adds a level of accountability and keeps everybody on the same page. Have regular me, uh, meetings on that particular project and whatever it is you're doing is that in and of itself is going to control anything that might pop up. Like I might have an idea where I want to do X, Y, Z and Z goes, well, you know, Rob, that's that might bust our four hour window. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. That might, you know, cause then you're talking it out. It's not, you know, uh, Rob wants to do what Zig doesn't. It's your now you're thinking, okay, well, it may not be such a good idea to do it right now. So let's let's wait to the next maintenance window and push it back. 
So manage the expectations as much as you can. That's that's good. Um, I would add a because I wanted to talk a little bit more about this whole maintenance window uh, topic, right? So, um, you know, you mentioned like don't try to fit as much as you can in four hours, right? I have been in those situations where it's not on you who's trying to fit that stuff, though. Like a lot of times, uh, a company like a huge company, I'll go healthcare, hospital, right? They can only have an, a maintenance window once every month or once every quarter. It's just how they how they function, and it, and they have that maintenance window. They actually have to cut every over to an alternate data center, an alternate location, and run their, their operations out of that alternate location, which is less preferred. It's not their main location. And so when you're doing this, this, this work, right, a lot of times I've seen it where you got 12 hours. You had a 12-hour maintenance window. You got over 100 things you're trying to do, right? And you've you've labbed it out, you you know, but it's not just you. Like I'm telling like it's you have parts of that 100 those tasks, right? You might have 50 or 70 of those tasks, but then you got app teams doing things, you got developers doing things, you got server teams, storage teams. I mean, everyone has a whole bunch of different thing uh different responsibilities. I want to keep saying things, different responsibilities. And so it is critical to align those, right? What the storage team does and the VMware team does is going to affect you. What you do is going to affect them, right? You don't have access to everything. You you as a network engineer, in most cases, you're not going to be able to access the storage network or the, uh, the VMware environment, right? Unless you're a small organization, but in most cases, larger organizations, they're going to be, you're going to become almost like siloed in terms of access, so you just want to make sure you're coordinating all those pieces together and you guys are planning it. I mean, I can tell you from experience, those planning cycles are long, right? You're, you're spending 30 to an hour, 30 minutes to an hour every day, um, literally planning a maintenance. It's going to happen in three months. Right. Those type of scenarios, that's a very, very large. And when you're just describing a very, very large change with, you know, a lot of moving parts, um, in regards of you're doing a really, really large maintenance window, or I'm sorry, uh, executing a very large maintenance plan or a very, very small one, um, the same rules apply. You know, it's manage the expectations and understand what's going to be happening. I feel like I'm repeating myself in my last statement, but no, you are, but it's important. It, it is. I mean, I've I've run, I've eliminated a lot of a lot of catastrophes by removing things and be like, you know what, we don't really need to do EIGRP stubs on these routers. It's not going to make us any faster in the network. Let's remove that from the operation. So it's going to pull 30 minutes of config time off the box, right? You know, try to optimize those times so that, you know, in the, in the event that there is a, you know, you have to put out a fire, uh, put out a fire that pops up that you didn't know was going to happen. Um, one thing that I've seen a lot of junior guys do is when you make a change somewhere and something goes down, you know, monitoring pops up, solar winds is reporting something down. And then it's a squirrel and you feel like you have to run off and fight that fire. Like, no, 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 stay where you're at, follow the plan. We, and then if that thing is still down, then that becomes a priority. But the things that are on the, the maintenance window priority list are need to be, need to be done because those are our meeting our expectations as to what we're getting accomplished. Because the reality of it is when you're, when you're doing networking at a really, really high level, you're building highways and roads between servers and PCs and end stations, right? Where if I, the server team, if they build a, a, a pizza box, and they deploy a Windows server on that to an, and an email server, for example. That's that's a, that's a, considered that to be a house or like Walmart. You know, it's only going to be doing one thing, right? But if my network connectivity to that server goes down, then that particular device is no longer usable. There, you know, the water main broke in the road, and you can't go because you had to get redirected. The network is going to be a much larger impact than a single server or even a VMware server with a couple servers running on it. So when you look at it from that perspective, of if you're going to be making modifications to the network at any point in time, make sure you understand what the impact is after you've made that change. So if that device that went down, you know, 20 minutes into your uh, maintenance window takes a dump and you're, you know, three hours later, everything's done and that thing is still down, that, then it's time to dive into that particular thing and figure out, okay, why is it down? Oh, you know, I just forgot to change the, de- the next top IP address, you know, or something simple like that. Or, oh, it's the port's in the wrong VLAN and that VLAN got deleted when we updated VTP. You know, things like that do happen and you have to take those situations into account when they do occur. So um, I've avoided a lot of issues by doing that. And I've seen a lot of junior engineers like it's a, trust me, but not worth it right now to go dive into it. I would <laughs> rather you be done with task five and six before you worry about getting task two back online, you know, and then being able to prioritize that. 
So, uh, of course, I'm going to have more to say after that, right? Because that's just what this <laughs> is. So, um, hopefully, this is entertaining for everyone. Um, so, uh, two things, because we're still talking about maintenances, right? And I, I've learned over the years what is beneficial for me is if you think it's going to take two hours to complete a maintenance, then schedule double the time. So that's the first thing I would say, right? Like if it's going to take four hours and that's for everyone, right? That's if from beginning to end, including rollback, right? It's going to take four hours, then schedule an eight hour maintenance window because you never know what's going to happen. And in me personally, I'd rather ask the business for an eight hour maintenance window and finish in six hours and be like, hey, I finished in six hours, we're good. They're gonna love that. And now, if you say you're asking for four hours and you need two more hours, that looks really bad for the business, right? Like, so that, that'd be a quick like lesson learned. Never ask for what you think you need. Always ask for double of what you need. And then you said something else and I wanted to, I wanted to key on that and I don't remember because that's how my brain works. So <laughs> just being real, right? Um, yeah, I think it, it, I wasn't sure if that might've been head oh, nope, I got it. I got it now. See, I, I knew once you tried to talk, I'd figure it out. Yeah. So this is just how Zig, my, my head works. It, sometimes I just forget things. So we're talking about like um, the tasks, right? Like going through a maintenance window and all the tasks and, and you want to complete your tasks, right? So I would say two things about your tasks. Have a verification outcome, right? What do you, what should that state be? Whatever that state is, what should that state be after you do this task, right? You should already know that this is going to go down or I can do a show run on the command and know that, you know, show run in the configuration. Maybe it's a show run VLAN or show run, I don't know, show IP in brief. I don't know, but I'm just throwing out ideas, right? Some sort of show command on the configuration on that device to show you, yep, I did apply my change. That's verified. The config took just a real quick, the config took, and then a verification of the outcome of that, that, that command, right? So if you added a new IP address to an interface, that interface should be up in most cases, unless it's a VLAN interface and that, you know, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Like if that interface is online, you should be able to ping it, right? There should be some sort of verification that yes, that's up. And then you should know the impact, right? So if you bring down a network, you should know that systems will go offline. I mean, that's just an inherent cause right. uh, an effect, right? You brought down a network, those systems are offline. Maybe you're moving that subnet to a different device. So that should be expected, right? You should not have that route in the routing table, all those things. The second aspect is have backstops, right? Like have the backstop. Do you guys know, do you know what a backstop is, Rob? I, I'm going to have to say no. What okay. you're referring to. So it's a military term that, that so, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, so we usually do a backstop. Um, so the easiest example is when you're traveling on a patrol and um, if you go too far, right? You, you, maybe you have a waypoint and you go too far, you have a backstop. And that's like, this is, if I hit this mark, if this geographical landmark, I went too far, right? I see. So I would do something similar on a maintenance window. I would say, this is my period of backstop. Like, Hey, I did this task. Um, and now this stuff's not working. This is not expected. So mm, okay. I need to stop, right? I need to stop because I have to be at a specific situation here before I move forward. And that's all that is. It's more of like a, a level setting. You get to that point, you're like, okay, I should have IP connectivity. It's like the CCI lab, right? Like the golden <laughs> the golden place to be or whatever we call it, right? Full layer three connectivity throughout the topology. You run your script to ping everything. That's kind of like a backstop, right? Like if you didn't get there, then you have something wrong. Same thing in the maintenance window. If you didn't get to that backstop, something's wrong. Don't continue until you figure out what's wrong. Well, I'm glad you clarified your backstop because backstop and the lingo that I know is when you're shooting, you don't make sure that the <laughs> yes. bullets or the your target hit something else. Yes. All right, buddy. Um, you have any last minute comments, concerns, questions that you want to share with everyone? Uh, no, I think we've covered quite a bit. I'm, I think a part two would be good because then we can dive into more of like, you know, some of the things that we've done yeah. in the past yeah. that have have caused problems and how we resolve them and things like that. Oh, dude, I can pull out the bag of like, uh, oh crap moments that I've been in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, this has been great, man. I was like, I think this is really, really important to, to get out there. Cause there's a lot of people that are either just getting into the industry or they're, they've been in the industry for a while and they really don't know what they're supposed to do. You know, what the, what the network engineering role is all about or, you know, so I think this is important to, to get out there because the more people we can, you and I can affect, down the road, you know, uh, the, uh, hopefully the better the industry will become down long term. So this is really good. Agreed, man. It's been great to have you on the show. Um, do you want to go ahead and kind of plug wherever you are on the interwebs? 
Oh wow, I'm 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 all over I'm all over the place. Uh, so, I, I I dropped that on you because I wasn't going to list it all off. Yeah, so uh, yeah, there there's a few. So I'll, my top ones, I have a YouTube channel, Rob Riker's Tech Channel. Check it out. Um, I put a, I'm consistently. It's a, I'm a, usually a daily uploader to that um, video series on different stuff. So check that out. You can follow me on Twitter at Riker Rob. Um, I'm tweeting about the my my daily labbing and things like that. Um, I have, uh, I am an INE instructor. So if you follow INE, go over there. Um, my content is older, three, four or five years ago is when I put this stuff out there, but I still have content there. I also have a, uh, a website called simplified-networking and or simplified-networking.com where uh, my goal was to try to organize my YouTube content and co- uh, and have it in one spot and then share that out. But I mean, <laughs> Jake knows how, how busy you get with trying to do just oh, one man. thing and you get sidetracked. Um, that's pretty much, uh, you can follow me, uh, if you want to connect with me, hit me up on LinkedIn, um, Rob Riker, I'm, you know, fairly easy to find. Um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much me. If you, uh, want to communicate with me in some way, Twitter's probably the easiest to get a hold of me. Um, I don't participate in study groups. Um, it's just not my jam. I personally like to stay out of them cause they, they're distractions for me. And I'm, I'm just as much a squirrel as anybody else is. So the less distractions I have in my life, the better off I am. I am I am the same way, buddy. I am the same way. So just for everyone's uh, knowledge, all those links that Rob just shared will be in the show notes because I couldn't remember them all either. So <laughs> so we'll put them in the show notes. And real quick, one link for you to remember is a zigbits.tech slash 62. That is the show number. Today is 62. And so it's zigbits.tech slash 62. Rob, I appreciate you, buddy. This has been great. Um, we got a pretty long episode. I think everyone's going to love it. Friends, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we had a ball, I think, um, really talking about you know what a network engineer is, demystifying the role. Um, let us know how you liked it. Uh, you can find the show notes at zigbits.tech slash 62. You can email me at zig at zigbits.tech. I will put all of Rob's content information in the show notes. You know, Ping us. Let us know if you like this content. If you'd like more about this content, we will definitely create more content um, for you. Uh, there's a lot of more content in there. Obviously, this isn't scripted. This is real raw and in the wild, right? Um, If you have any questions, uh, feel free to let us know. And until next time, bye for now.